Well, hey, good to be with you guys this morning. If, uh, if we haven't met, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. And so glad that you guys are with us together to worship. Um, I took a little sneak peek at Zoom. It's always so helpful to see those faces. Um, thanks for all of you. You've got your camera on. Sonnenfelds, I see you got some family who've made it in town. That's awesome. Uh, Dylan, you and Patty, you guys are great to be week and have your cameras. It's so encouraging for us to, rem- to be reminded that we are together even though we're apart, so we're grateful that you're here. And uh, today we're actually coming to the end um, of our series on Advent. This is the Advent uh, season, which means that it's almost Christmas, almost. So we're going to stay in Advent just a little bit longer today. And if you're new, if you just happen to find us online or you're maybe new to church and you haven't celebrated Advent before. Advent is the season of time that leads up to Christmas. Uh, but while it has become uh, a kind of an anticipation or looking forward to Christmas, that's not, a, not its historic roots. Historically, Advent has been about a time where the church looks forward to Jesus's uh, coming in the future, his second advent. Um, advent simply means, it comes from the Latin word adventus, and it simply means arrival or coming. And so while we look back at Christmas and we celebrate and remember Jesus's birth and his first coming, um, Advent is a time where we remember that Jesus has promised that he will come again. And so we look forward to the future. Um, and that it requires us to acknowledge where we are in the story, that we're in between those two major events uh, that scripture tells us about, that we live in the tension of the in-between, the, the already but not yet. Jesus has initiated the kingdom, but he hasn't brought about its fullness. And acknowledging where we are in the story acknowledges that in some ways we're in the dark. Advent begins in the dark and it, and it tells us to move towards the light. And so we've been talking in this series uh, about how the, the darkness in the world around us is so prevalent and how we can be people of light, and we've covered some really dark territory. And I want to begin today again with a kind of darkness that settles into our lives. I think in 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 insidious ways. It's it's not as stark or as heavy as as some of the things we talked about last week. Uh, it's a more of a pervasive darkness that that infiltrates our lives and can can subtly rob us of joy, rob us of satisfaction and of contentment. Um, but there is a, a way of of, of dealing with it that the scripture tells us about that I want to talk about today. And to introduce this darkness and this, this discontentment and disappointment that pervades all of our lives, I want to begin with a question for you. Have you ever noticed in your life that whenever you look forward to something, something good in your life, something you've built up or you've, you've been looking forward to or saving for or anticipating for a while, and you finally get that thing, there is the rush of excitement and joy and happiness but then shortly after, or, or maybe a little while after, that, that excitement, that happiness, that joy seems to fade away. And you're either the same, your happiness level goes back to a similar level, or you're maybe even a little less happy, a little more disappointed with your everyday life than you were before. I, I think we can all think about times where we've had experiences like this. The time when you worked so really hard for a promotion at work. You worked and worked, you spent long hours, you finished the project on time, and finally your boss recognized your hard work, gave you the promotion, you got a raise, he acknowledged you in front of the company. But it wasn't long after that, was it, that your new job was just your job, and the excitement faded away, and your overall happiness level 
probably wasn't that much greater. Maybe you liked your job better, maybe you liked it worse, but things weren't that much different. What about your dream vacation? Can you think of a time where you, you saved for a vacation and you looked forward to it and you were so excited for it? And do you remember, we, we can all identify with that feeling, can't we, of sitting on the airplane, leaving for a vacation? Is there anything worse, anything better? And then the flip, is there anything worse? Then think about that feeling when you're on the plane ride home. I mean, even if the vacation was great, it was amazing. Uh, you know, you, you did all the excursions, you saw all the things, the hotel was great, the service, the food, everything was good. Think about that feeling you have on the plane ride home and thinking about going back to work on Monday. What about big purchases? Um, anybody remember the first time you bought a new car? How exciting? I mean, that is peak happiness. The day you drive that thing off the lot is peak joy. I mean, it is so, the smell, new car smell, is there anything better than new car smell? And the bells and whistles that your new car has that your old car didn't have, but didn't take long, did it? You know, maybe six months, maybe a year, maybe, maybe, maybe for you the joy lasted a little longer, maybe two years, but at some point the new car is just your car and you're just left with the payments. Economists actually have a phrase for this. They, they call it... Uh, the law of diminishing marginal utility. Um, and there's a slide, they, also, they often use this as, a, as an example, this slide of the, the more pizza you eat, the less satisfying it becomes. First slice, great. Second slice, pretty good. Third, eh. Fourth, you're kind of in self-loathing territory. You're starting to feel a little bit, a little bit sad about yourself. Um, you know, but this, this happens with lots of things. Remember first smartphone purchase. I mean, first thing, first time I had a smartphone, it was like, it was magic. I mean, you could just touch it and things happen. It was amazing. And then I contrast that to recently upgraded my phone and yeah, it's got some cool new bells and whistles, but now it's just my phone. If you've ever wondered if it's just you that had these, has these experiences, it's not. These are universal human experiences and we all have them. We all have, regardless of, of what culture or what your age group is or what your background or ethnicity, rich or poor, everybody has this experience of, of looking forward to something, getting it and feeling just slightly disappointed or, 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 or just going back to normal and the, the new wears off, the excitement wears off. What I think is important in, a, in this phenomenon is acknowledging that it's something that we all experience and then bringing it to your mind and then thinking about how do you deal with that? How do you think about that? Because I think there's a, a few different ways that we can respond to this reality. The first response, I think it's the default response. I might even call it the non-response is that you don't even think about it, but you might even know that this is happening. You may just think that this is how life is. And when you, when you take this perspective on this phenomenon, when you take this perspective on the law of diminishing marginal utility, what, what happens is you begin to live into this cycle where you're constantly pursuing the next thing that will make you happy. Constantly looking for the next experience or possession or relationship or whatever it is. Psychologists have studied this and they have a name for the phenomenon. It's called the hedonic treadmill or a hedonic adaptation, which comes from the, 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 the term hedonism, which is the pursuit of pleasure. And 
this hedonic treadmill is simply psychologists acknowledging that when you're running on this treadmill, you're never going anywhere. You're always seeking after that thing that is ahead. I love this cartoon. We have a, we have a slide of it. It's, it's a couple at a travel agency and they're standing at the, at the desk and they say, yeah, it all looks great. I can't wait to be disappointed. It's this reality that this is always gonna be there, but we just keep doing the same things over and over. That's one response. But running on this endless treadmill isn't our only response. It's not our only option. The Bible actually presents a different way, an alternative perspective on how to confront this universal feeling of frustration and disappointment and discontentment. And I wanna share this perspective with you today. Before we jump to the scriptures that that back this up, I wanna share it to you in the form that I first heard it. Um, I was in my late 20s, um, fully running hard on this hedonic treadmill when I first came across this alternate perspective. Um, I was in my late mid, I was probably in my late 20s, I guess. I'd been working for a while, I've been out of college, uh, but I'd been on this, this pursuit of, of just getting new things, buying new things. Uh, you know, I, I graduated from college, I got a job, I bought a new car, my very first new car, peak joy was that day. Later, as I was paying off the payments, that was, that was less exciting. Uh, but I was going on trips and vacations and, and, and I was starting to notice this phenomenon. In my job, I was having success. I was, I was working for a big company and I'd, I'd gotten some promotions and some raises. And I began to look at the people who were ahead of me and I began to think, so is that where I'm headed? They don't seem very happy. Their marriages weren't great. And so I began to wrestle with this nagging question that I had about life and purpose and discontentment. I I refer to it jokingly now as my my quarter life crisis because I was in my 20s at the time. But it was the first time in my adult life that I was really asking these central questions about purpose and meaning and what life was all about. And it was at this point that I began to re-examine faith. Because although I grew up going to church, um, I had been out of church for about a decade at that point, just didn't see the point of attending church. I, I had faith and belief in Jesus, but it was, it was sort of a childlike sort of faith. And so as I began to wrestle with, with these questions of purpose, I started to go back to church and began reconnecting with my faith. And a friend who I met at church, um, I shared with him some of these, these frustrations that I had. And he said, you should read this book. And the book was called Mere Christianity. It was a book by C.S. Lewis. You might know him for the, the Narnia books that he wrote, but he wrote a lot of other great uh, and insightful books about, the, about Christian life and Christian experience. And one of the chapters in this book, it addressed this nagging feeling of dis, discontentment that I had and gave me an alternate perspective about what things and possessions and experiences really are about. And rather, rather than just sharing it with you, I found this great little video that, uh, that actually reads from this section of Mere Christianity. It's a little long, it's about seven minutes, but I thought it was better to hear it from the source uh, than to hear from me. So take a look at this video. Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Hope. Most of us find it very difficult to want heaven at all, except insofar as heaven means meeting again our friends who have died. One reason for this difficulty is that we have not been trained. Our whole education tends to fix our minds on this world. 
Another reason is that when the real want for heaven is present in us, we do not recognize it. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job. But something has evaded us. Now, there are two wrong ways of dealing with this fact, and one right one. One, the fool's way. He puts the blame on the things themselves. He goes on all his life thinking that if only he tried another woman or went for a more expensive holiday or whatever it is, then this time he really would catch the mysterious something we are all after. Most of the bored, discontented, rich people in the world are of this type. They spend their whole lives trotting from woman to woman through the divorce courts, from continent to continent, from hobby to hobby, always thinking that the latest is the real thing, at last, and always disappointed. Two, the way of the disillusioned, sensible man. He soon decides that the whole thing was moonshine. Of course, he says, one feels like that when one's young. But by the time you get to my age, you've given up chasing the rainbow's end. And so he settles down and learns not to expect too much, and represses the part of himself which used, as he would say, to cry for the moon. This is, of course, a much better way than the first, and makes a man much happier and less of a nuisance to society. It tends to make him a prig. He is apt to be rather superior towards what he calls adolescence, but on the whole, he rubs along fairly comfortably. It would be the best line we could take if man did not live forever. But supposing infinite happiness really is there, waiting for us, supposing one really can reach the rainbow's end, in that case, it would be a pity to find out too late, a moment after death, that by our supposed common sense, we had stifled in ourselves the faculty of enjoying it. 3. The Christian Way The Christian says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. 
Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy, or echo, or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. There is no need to be worried by facetious people who try to make the Christian hope of heaven ridiculous by saying they do not want to spend eternity playing harps. The answer to such people is that if they cannot understand books written for grown-ups, they should not talk about them. All the scriptural imagery, harps, crowns, gold, etc., is, of course, a merely symbolical attempt to express the inexpressible. Musical instruments are mentioned because for many people, not all, music is the thing known in the present life which most strongly suggests ecstasy and infinity. Crowns are mentioned to suggest the fact that those who are united with God in eternity share his splendor and power and joy. Gold is mentioned to suggest the timelessness of heaven, gold does not rust, and the preciousness of it. People who take these symbols literally might as well think that when Christ told us to be like doves, he meant that we were to lay eggs. dismissive and and sort of be charming about it right uh, so i love what i love about this message when i first read it um was that it opened my eyes to this this idea that the longings that i had in me um weren't meant to be frustrated they were meant to be fulfilled and the problem wasn't with me and it wasn't with any of the things that i was pursuing in my life it, it was in my expectations for them it was in my expectations for them to fulfill me perfectly, that there was something more um, that, that, that they were just pointing to. They were a foretaste, an echo of, of something more real that, that was yet to come. And now what I wish I could change about his language, and he addresses it a bit himself, but when Lewis talks about our longing for heaven, I think that gets a little bit confusing for us because that word heaven has been loaded down with a lot of the stuff that he takes to task. This idea that that we will float on clouds or sing with angels. Um, but if I were to suggest one small change, and that's pretty arrogant, suggesting changes to C.S. Lewis, but I would say, if you could equate in your mind when he talks about heaven, it's the same thing we've been talking about through the series when we talk about the kingdom of God. Or what you hear Jesus talk about over and over again when you read through the stories of his life. He constantly refers to the kingdom of God. or Sometimes he will say the kingdom of heaven. 
I think the concept of heaven has been a little corrupted, but when we read that word, we have to remember that the, the people who, who Jesus was talking to, the first century world had this three-tiered conception of life that heavens, which is just another word, we'll look at it in a minute. The, the word that's used in Greek could just mean skies or the heavens, the stars that they looked up. And that was distant to them. They, they saw that as a place that where God dwelled, that, that was separate. Earth was here, it's where we lived. And below the earth was where we went after death. And so this concept of heaven, while it's become corrupted by our, our ideas, our, our notions of disembodied existence, uh, Lewis takes it to task and, and, and points us in a more biblical direction to ask, what is it that the scripture does say about this future reality, about the kingdom of God and about what the full consummation that we look forward to in the future? That's what Advent is all about. It's what we've been talking about is that we look forward to and we long for this coming day, this coming kingdom, when God's kingdom will be made full and made whole. And with the time we, le- we have left, I wanna take a look at, a look at a, a few verses of scripture that get, paint a picture for us. These were referenced by Lewis in that little video in, in, in Mere Christianity. And I just wanna take a look at them for a few moments uh, and see what it means for us uh, at Advent. So to begin with, I wanna start with the book of Hebrews. So he referred to this um, as the way that we see the scripture pointing us towards seeing ourselves as people who are not destined to live our entire existence on the earth as it exists today. So starting with Hebrews chapter 11, verse one, we read, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Now, this is a famous chapter in Hebrews where the author talks about the importance of a life of faith. Living in hope for something that we cannot see that but that we believe is real. We were actually talking just before the service started. Jeremy, who's running sound today, is reading this book. And the little Greek word there that, that's translated faith, it, it has an active component. Um, he was saying the book he's reading actually says it has a sense of allegiance, that it calls us to an allegiance to a way of living. And what the author here is saying is the greats of faith, and he, he goes on to to, to recount their lives. All of the great heroes of the Old Testament lived in this way. They lived by this pattern. They lived with a hope for something that they could not see, but they looked forward to it. And this is, he says, what they are commended for. And so if we skip ahead, he goes through an account of their life. But if we skip ahead to verse 13, we, say, we, we, we see his conclusion about their life. He says, all these people, we're still living by faith, living with an allegiance to following Jesus when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would, have had, had the, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared a city for them. What is this heavenly country, this city that the author of Hebrews and C.S. Lewis is referring to? It's the promise that we long for that is at the heart of Advent. It is the consummation of the kingdom 
of God. And, and we don't know fully what, what that will be like. But the scripture gives us pictures and images, metaphors that we have to take seriously. Again, we can't read them too literally or we're at risk of treating this as a child's book. We have to understand that the authors who write about these things are trying to convey things that are beyond our conception and understanding. And the city that he's talking about is the city that that the apostle John, one of Jesus's first followers at the end of his life, had a vision of what this city would be like, what the end of times would be like. And he wrote it down in a book called Revelation. This is the, the last book in our Bible. And if we go to the book of Revelation to chapter 21, we get a picture of how John conveys what he saw in this vision. Take a look, starting in verse one. It says, then I saw a new heaven. And again, arenos, this word heaven simply means a, a new skies, a new heavens unfolding and a new earth. For the first heavens and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the sky, out of the heavens from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. If you wonder why did we read this verse from 2 Samuel at the beginning during Advent? It's what Brian said. It's God's desire has always been to dwell with his creation, to dwell with us. And God's promise to David was that as he was trying to create a temple, a place for him to dwell among the people, he said, well, you're going to be my king. Your lineage will be my king forever. And you will be my people. Later in Revelation, John says he looks around and he didn't see a temple. Why? Because God's dwelling place is with the people. They don't need a temple. His presence is there. He continues verse five. He who was seated on the throne, that's Jesus, by the way. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. We talked about this last week. There there are certain things that simply cannot persist. For the kingdom to be the kingdom, there are things that have to be excluded and that's the process of judgment. If you missed last week, go back and talk about it and you you can listen to that and, and we can talk about it later. Uh, the, the language though here, as, as we read through this, we have to remember is it's poetical and it's metaphorical and no one truly knows. 
No one really truly knows what that future day will be like, what it will be like for us to live in the kingdom. But it it seems to be pointing to a new embodied reality on a redeemed and restored earth with God dwelling among us in some way. There's a city. We're, We're not going back to the garden where God created humanity. We're going forward. Civilization persists. There's complexity there. Some things and some people are excluded as we talked about last week, but what persists and endures is an embodied life in the presence of God forever. The fulfillment of all the longings and all the desires and all the things we hope for and look for in this life. And this is the vision and the hope that is at the end of the times, at the end of times. And it's the, the, the hope that's at the center of Advent. It's the hope and the vision that we long for and we look for in Christ's return. And this is the vision, by the way, which is at the heart every day of New Denver Church. Have you ever wondered why our name is New Denver Church? We're not gonna be old Denver Church at some point. It's the longing for Denver to become new, for us to be new. This is our vision, new lives. We want to see lives transformed by the good news of Jesus, to see marriages healed, to see relationships reconciled, to see people freed from addictions. This is a foretaste of the coming kingdom of God. We, we want to see a new Denver. We want to see communities and our city transformed. We want to see justice done. When we help Joshua Station find housing for a homeless family, when we're a part of that process, that's a foretaste of the kingdom of God. And we want to see the world experience these things. We, we want to see the, the goodness of, of kids in a small village in Guatemala get a chance to go to school and to learn about who Jesus is. And when that happens, we believe that's a foretaste of the coming kingdom of God. And we want to celebrate and see those things happening. And we want to say that's pointing towards what God is doing. The kingdom is breaking in and there's a greater more full version of that that is coming one day. And we wanna enjoy the good things of life too, by the way. We wanna enjoy the the mountains of Colorado, climbing up them or skiing down them. We wanna enjoy good food and good wine and craft beer. We wanna enjoy the goodness of friendships and relationships and being together. How we all long for that right now while we're separated. We wanna enjoy the goodness of sports and movies and theaters and all the other things that we can't do right now. Part of what the pandemic has reminded us of is the goodness of life and how quickly those things can be taken away. But we also don't want to miss that our life cannot be of these things because they will disappoint us. They are simply pointing us towards a greater reality. We have to remember that our joy is not in these things themselves. They are simply pointing us towards the reality of God's coming kingdom. And as we wrap up, I wanna leave you with um, a thought. This is a prayer that I come back to. Um, it's, it's how St. Ignatius of Loyola puts it in the foundation of the Jesuit order. He says this, he says, the goal of our life is to live with God forever. forever. God who loves us, who gave us life. And this is often my prayer. Our own response of love allow 
allows God's life to flow into us without limit. All the things in this world are gifts of God presented to us that we might know God more easily and make a return of love more readily. That's the answer to the hedonic treadmill. That's the answer to the discontentment that we have. When we receive the things that this world has to offer us, good and also things given to us to allow us to know God's love for us more readily and make a return of love more easily, we're beginning to live into the kingdom of God right here and right now. The hope of Advent, the hope of life is that there is more than this life. There is life that begins now and extends into eternity. So as we close today and as we prepare to celebrate Christmas this week, let's enjoy all of the good things that God has given us. And let's hold on to the hope that's still ahead of us. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are so grateful for your goodness um, that you have um, given us this picture um, through the, 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 those who've gone before us and who've faithfully recorded their experiences with you and the visions and the pictures that they had and, and all the things that Jesus taught about this coming kingdom. God, give us faith, not just a, an intellectual faith, but an allegiance and a commitment to live our lives around the hope for this future reality, that we might be people who recognize that there's more to life than this life. And that as we live our everyday lives, as we do our work, as we enjoy the relationships of the people that you've put around us, as we, as we enjoy the goodness of, of all the things that earth and this world have to offer, that we would always enjoy them with thankfulness and recognition. They are gifts from you, given to us that we might know you more easily and then in gratitude, make a return of love to you more readily. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, amen.